Hi there, I'm Sue Alvitz from the blog Stories of an Unschooling Family. Welcome to my podcast. This is episode 58 and today I want to talk about the question, do I have all the unschooling answers? And leading on from that, a few people left a few questions on my blog relating to last week's podcast. I thought we might chat about that as well. And then there's communication skills. What if we get into some kind of debate or conversation about unschooling or some other kind of issue? What if somebody disagrees with our opinions? What do we do? What is the best thing to say? Well, I haven't got all the answers there, but I have got a couple of tips. And I want to share a conversation that I had on Facebook in the week. And then another thing I want to talk about today is how we can translate all the wonderful learning experiences that our children are having into the right educational language. And lastly, if we have time, Jim Rose and I were talking about Jane Austen and classic novels last night. I want to share a few of the books that she hopes to read in the future. So I hope that's all going to be interesting, and I hope that you'll listen along. start with the question, do I have all the unschooling answers? I write about unschooling, I talk about it, I'm even thinking of writing a book about unschooling. Do I have all the answers? Am I an unschooling expert? Well, the quick answer to that is no, I don't have all the answers. I don't even have all the answers for my own family, let alone answers for everybody else's family. I don't think there's such a thing as an unschooling manual that we have to follow, tick off all the boxes, and we're doing unschooling in the right way. Even though there are certain principles to the unschooling way of life, I think the details of how that is lived out in every family is very different. Yes, unschooling looks very different in different families because we are all very different. I think we have to find our own way when we're unschooling. We have to learn by experiencing unschooling in our own families. So what's the point of people talking about unschooling and writing books about unschooling? I think that we can give encouragement to each other, support. We can discuss various aspects of the unschooling way of life. We have the principles in common, I think. Such things as children will learn what they need to know when they need to know it. We might wonder if this is true, but when we experience it in our own families by living the unschooling way of life, most people do come to the realization that this is true. And by talking about unschooling, writing about unschooling, we can share ideas. Not everybody will agree with our ideas. But that's okay. We can discuss them, we can try them out, we can reject them. But I think it's always good to be open to ideas, to possibly learn from them. I might say, go out there, try unschooling, but I don't have all the answers. Sometimes we have to discover them for ourselves. But we can chat about things, and I have a couple of questions from last week's episode that were left in the comments on my blog that we could talk about. 
I could give my opinion and you might not agree with it or you might agree with it. That's quite okay. I usually just share what I have discovered from homeschooling my children. I share things that have worked for me, but I don't necessarily expect everybody to agree with me. I think that's quite okay. So what are the questions? The first one was about unschool maths. Now, I don't insist that my children learn maths. I tempt them with maths experiences. I have resources that I say, hey, would you like to have a look at this? Or shall we watch this video together? I observe them using maths in their everyday lives and I record all that. But I don't say, it's time to do some maths today. Go and get your books. But the question is, if a mother wants her child to do some maths each day, but if she gives the child the choice of how they're going to learn that maths, they can choose a particular course or a textbook or some other way of learning maths. As long as they're doing some maths every day, can that still be called unschooling? Now, I know a lot of people would say, no, that's not unschooling at all, because when we unschool, we have to trust that our children will learn what they need to know when they need to know it. And we don't have to force our kids to learn any particular things. I've also heard people say that maths is no different from anything else. Why pick on maths? Do we not believe that children will learn it? They use a lot of maths in their everyday lives. They will learn what they need to know. But saying that... I do think that we can unschool and have some requirements as well. We can't always jump in and let go of everything all at the same time. And I'm speaking from experience because for many years I required maths and I described myself as an unschooler who requires maths. I was very fortunate that no one challenged me on this. And in time, I made my own mind up about letting go of maths. I observed my children coming to hate maths because they had to do it in a certain way and it seemed irrelevant. Yes, they didn't pursue the subject of maths out of interest and enjoyment. It was thrust upon them. And when I came to that point, I decided to let go. So I think we have to find our own way of getting there. And maybe some people won't let go of everything. But I don't think we have the right to in tell people that they're not unschooling because they do things differently from us. There is a spectrum of unschooling, I believe. We have to start somewhere. We might all move along this line. Some of us will get right to the end. Some of us will find a happy position partway along. I don't think it really matters. All that matters is that we do what suits our families and everybody within our families is happy, that we continue to listen to them. Because, of course, if maths isn't working out, if there is a big battle there all the time, or is, as in our family's case, my children were coming to hate the subject, then maybe it's time to listen and think about it and to say, hey, I'm going to give something else a go. Now, wrapped up together with that maths question, was another question. Does it really matter if people call us unschoolers or not? 
are labels important? I don't think they are really important. There is one aspect of labels which I find helpful, and that is when I'm doing a Google search. When I want to try and find like-minded people or information about people who are living a similar life to ours, I Google unschooling. So it's good to have a word. But the problem with labels is when people can't agree on what the label means. What is the definition of an unschooler? Perhaps we have to be kind and encouraging. People might have different ideas about what unschooling means to us. I don't think we can come along and say, you're not unschooling. In a Facebook post once, in a forum, somebody challenged me when I said that. I said that we have to be accepting of everybody's view of unschooling. People don't stay still. And maybe people will be encouraged to become more unschooly as time goes on, especially if they feel supported and encouraged. Because what does the opposite do? If you say to somebody, you're not a real unschooler, I haven't got the right to say that in the first place. They might be unschooling to their own definition, not mine. Who says that my definition is the right one? But also, it is very unkind. So I think labels are very tricky. And talking to people about unschooling is also very tricky, whether it's to people who criticize unschooling or whether it, we're having a conversation with other unschoolers. So I want to talk in a minute about how we can have conversations with people about unschooling. But first, I've got one more question that I've just picked out from among the comments that I thought we'd talk about. Now, the question's got to do with uh, strewing about providing interesting experiences for our children, interesting learning experiences, enriching their environments. Is there a certain age that I would start doing that, actively seeking out interesting resources? Or does that just happen naturally over time as our children find their passions, find things they're interested in? Do we sort of step in line with that do we start looking for things that match up to our children's interests, maybe? Well, I'm thinking back to the time when my children were babies. Even my first child, when I knew nothing about unschooling, when I hadn't even thought about homeschooling, what did I do? Well, I enriched her environment. I read all the baby books. Stimulate your child as a baby from an early age. Read to your baby. Put things above your baby's sleeping area that they can look at. Draw faces and tape them to the wall where your baby can see them. Sit your baby in a baby chair and then put a little frame in front of them and tie on things like wooden spoons and socks. Things that they can push and feel and put into their mouths. Provide babies with rattles and brightly colored toys. Things that have texture. You probably know all the things I'm talking about. You've probably read them in baby books as well. Because authors say by enriching our children's environment, by providing them with lots of experiences, they will develop and they will learn. So I did all this. After a time, I stopped putting things above the cot because my children didn't have cots after that. But I put them into the baby sling and I carried my children everywhere. They got to experience everything that was going on around them. We all talked to our babies. 
We brought things to them to show them. We told them the names of things. And yes, our babies learnt and developed. And then one day I started thinking about education. I stopped bringing things to my children. I sort of expected them to start learning on their own. I think a lot of people do this. This is the next stage of life. We either send our children off to school where they will learn in a totally different way and the parents no longer are thinking in terms of enriching their child's environment or we start homeschooling and maybe we're thinking in terms of English and maths and workbooks and teaching our kids to read, all these type of things. But what if we kept on providing all those experiences that we used to give to our children? What if we never stopped doing it? What if we kept on taking our children places, kept showing them things, kept talking to them about the world, exposing them to as many different experiences as possible? Now, we're not going to continue bringing wooden spoons to them, but we can keep on taking them on outings. We can keep on bringing them things of interest and strewing them before them. They might be books, they might be games, they might be objects, they could be something on the internet, they could be paintings, they could be poems, they could be words, they could be thoughts. But what if we just kept on doing this? We'd be strewing naturally. I provided my children with lots of different experiences, including outside lessons for my first few. We tried gymnastics lessons and music lessons, all kinds of things. Some things didn't work out. After a term or two of them, my children made it obvious that they weren't interested and we dropped them and I tried something else. They've done dance, probably lots of things. I think over time, we do see our children gravitating to certain things and then strewing becomes easier. But that doesn't mean to say they aren't interested in things outside their own sphere of interest. They might pick up a new interest. We don't know. So I just keep on bringing things forward in a detached manner. If they don't, my children don't like what I offer them, that's quite okay. So I don't know if that answers the question or not, but there's a few thoughts on that. And I'm talking from my experience with my children. Now back to that question about labels and how we get into conversations with people who might disagree with us. Yes, I mentioned that I had such a conversation on Facebook recently. Somebody did not agree with something that I was doing with my children. She felt the need to stop by my Facebook timeline and correct me, tell me what I was doing wrong and give her reasons for it. It turned into a huge conversation. Everybody joined in. It was a public conversation to start with. In the end, I made it a private conversation for my friends only because I think my friends were being very open and honest and I felt the need to protect their privacy. It was all to do with a photo I'd posted and I posted it publicly, not thinking anything of it because it was just a photo. It was actually posted automatically from Instagram. And I expected a few people to stop by and say, great photo, yeah, like that, and nothing more. So it was a big surprise when somebody left a comment which was critical. How do we respond? Now, you might not have that same issue that I had on my Facebook timeline. 
but it started me thinking about how do we deal with people who have different opinions from us? Do we just state our case and argue it out? I learned this tip when I was a nursing mother's counsellor. I don't have many tips. I'm not pretending to be an expert on communication and what to do, but I thought I'd share this tip because I have found it useful over the years. And that is that when we want to engage somebody in discussion about an issue where we both have different opinions, it's always a good idea first to start with some common ground. Find some positive thing that we can say that will connect us together before stating our own opinion. Don't get them offside straight away by plunging in and saying you're wrong and this is what I believe. I've only ever had one really critical comment on my blogs. I have got lots of blogs. I've had lots of blogs over the years. And in all that time, I have had just one comment which really made me upset. I think it made me very upset because it was to do with my son Thomas who died as a baby. And I didn't respond very well at first because I was very emotional about it. Now I'd posted a photo of my son on my blog. The only problem was the photo had been taken after he died. And someone stopped by and said how horrible it was that I'd posted a photo of my dead son on a blog in public. I was so upset I deleted the comment, but I think that was the wrong thing to have done. What I should have done was found some common ground. And maybe you think, well, what common ground could they be? That was not very nice at all. But I thought about it and I tried to put myself in the other person's shoes, tried to show some empathy. And I think empathy is a great skill to have. I'm not perfect at it, uh, but we can all try and I do try. So I thought, look, perhaps this person has never experienced the death of a loved one. She will eventually, but perhaps at this very moment, she hasn't. So maybe she is frightened of death. Maybe she's frightened of looking at dead bodies. Maybe this is the reason she has left this comment. So I started off my comment with something along the lines of, it can be very distressing to see photos of dead people, can't it? It can be very frightening, and I understand why you feel this way. I'm not sure of my exact words now, but that was what I tried to convey, that I understood where she was coming from. And then I went on to explain why I had posted that photo. No, oh, I can't remember my words. Maybe I should have written it all down so I can tell you exactly what I said. I probably said something along the lines of the photos of my son. I love him. I didn't have many photos. He died. These photos were taken after his death because that was the only opportunity we had. And I love him. His body isn't horrific to me. It's just part of him. I should have shared some of my feelings with that person. Maybe they would have changed their minds. Maybe they wouldn't have, but I would have felt better about it, I think. Instead, I had a lot of bad feelings about that comment and the fact that I just hit the delete button straight away. So there's an example of what I'm talking about. So maybe if people do criticize us, we can look for that common ground. Maybe we can try and see things from the other person's point of view. Why do they not like unschooling? Why are they criticizing? Something might have happened 
to make them feel that way, they might have the wrong information. At the very least, we can say, yes, unschooling does seem like a lazy way of life, or I'm worried about children becoming selfish and self-centered too, before I found out what unschooling is really about. And whatever we say, maybe we can just be kind and not get all upset and emotional because that doesn't make us feel any better. And when it comes down to it, we can do whatever we like anyway. The other person's opinion is not going to change our minds if we are committed to our unschooling way of life. So what do you think? How do you deal with people who are criticizing the things that you are doing within your own family with your own children? I'd love to hear your tips as well. The other thing I think about is that when we engage with other people in arguments or discussions about particular issues, if we're all giving our point of view and not listening to the other person and seeing where they're coming from, nothing is ever going to change. I've seen a lot of conversations on the internet like this. People shout at each other. Who can shout the loudest? Who thinks that they are more right than the other? And nobody learns anything at all. Yeah, it just results in bad feeling. The other reason I want to improve my communication skills so that I can talk with other people in a more profitable way is for my children's sake. I want them to learn good communication skills as well. I want to be a good example for them. I don't want them to see me judging other people, getting into arguments and being unkind when I could be kind. Yeah, I think that this is um, very important for our own children. If we say that we're unschooling and that we love unconditionally and that we forgive others and all those sort of things, and that can't be true just within the family. It has to be true in all aspects of our lives. Now, I've rambled on a lot about that. I hope some of that makes sense. It's all a bit been a bit on my mind this week because of that discussion I had on my Facebook timeline. So if it didn't make much sense, I hope that you'll uh, forgive me for that one. And I can see the minutes are ticking by, so I should get on and talk about something else. Something a little bit less emotional. So how about translating our children's learning experiences into the right educational language? Now, I don't have all the answers here either, but I do have some ideas. I'm going to share them with you. And this all comes from an outing that the girls and I had last week. Now, if you remember last week, I was talking about how we'd had a couple of good outings, that we'd taken the time to spend time together doing a few things that didn't cost a lot of money or didn't involve a lot of effort, but that we had enjoyed immensely. And someone left a comment on my Facebook timeline about that uh, subject. She said that the most important thing is taking joy in the journey, slowing down, doing things that our kids want to do instead of rushing through life. And I think that she hit the nail on the head. Yes, why not stop at the park and push our children on the swings, have an ice cream, take joy in the journey. Sometimes we do rush through life very quickly. So we did some of that on Friday. We slowed down. Friday morning, I said to the girls, 
how about we go out and explore that nature reserve near a nearby town? We could take a picnic, have some lunch there and see what it's all about. Of course, the girls were all agreeable. They always are. They love picnics. So we went. Now, we have been driving along the main road between a couple of our local towns for 20 years, and I have passed the sign to this nature reserve many hundreds of times. And not once have I turned off the main road and gone down to explore, which is really quite sad. But on Friday, we did this. Imogen drove us all. She turned off and we went down this potholed road and a couple of hundred meters or so down this road we came to a little parking area. There was picnic tables, a little nature reserve. It is advertised as a wonderful place for bird watching. There's a lot of birds there. The view was spectacular. We could see over the river. Actually, it was more like a lagoon. It's a wetlands environment, home to many, many birds. We sat at a picnic table and we had coffee that we brought with us. We had some finger buns for morning tea. And then we put our picnic stuff back in the car and we went for a walk. There's a bit of a trail. We went a little bit further along the bank of the river and we came upon a weir. It was so totally unexpected. Of course, Sophie and I had our cameras. And I had actually given one of our cameras to Gemma Rose. She's not usually a photographer, but I just put the camera on auto for her, asked her if she'd like to use it, and she took lots of photos as well. So we had a photo session at the Weir, and we went around. We took photos of everything. There was a lot of information boards about the birds and the ecology of the area, all sorts of interesting stuff. We came across a viewing platform. Someone had constructed a wooden platform where we could look out over the lagoon and have a good view of the um, of the birds and the environment. We stopped for lunch after we'd had our walk. Lots of eating. Elvises like their food. I think we were there maybe two or three hours. Then afterwards I wanted to record all those learning experiences that we had had that morning in my Evernote records book so I sat down and I started recording and it was amazing the amount of notes that I got out of that three hour period and sometimes I think we miss things that we could record it's sad that we have to dissect every learning experience and make notes out of it can't our children just enjoy the experience well, they did enjoy the experience. It's me as the mother that's dissecting it. So it doesn't take away from their pleasure. And I just have to do that because I want my children to unschool, but also to be registered as homeschoolers legally in our state. So I'm prepared to do that work. So I spent quite a lot of time making notes out of that morning's picnic. I'm going to share some of those things that I actually recorded in my notebook. Well, first of all, I had lots of photos. The girls had lots of photos as well. Sophie took some of hers and edited them. She put some on Instagram. That was an extended learning experience. She was using digital media. She was using computer software to edit her photos. She shared those. The girls both talked about the morning in emails and letters to friends. That was English. They were writing about the morning's picnic. Of course, the photography was creative arts. 
We'll have a look later at a map, a Google map of the area. I took a couple of screenshots of that as well. That was using geographical tools. So geography, H-S-I-E, human society and its environment. I took a satellite photo. I took a street view as well. So they were different uh, ge geographical tools. There were lots of boards, as I said. On a couple of these boards, there was information about the adaptations of the birds to the environment, their different beak structures and feet structures. This is science. So I had I took photos of all these boards while I was there. I thought, look, these will be very useful for my records later on. We found a few signs saying such things as, do not eat the blackberries. They had been poisoned. They are an introduced species that is causing um, havoc in the natural environment. So people are trying to get rid of them. I mean, that's just universal. Uh, everybody is trying to get rid of blackberry brambles, which I think is rather sad because I rather like blackberries. But of course, they are a bit of a nuisance in our environment. Also, we found a sign saying that, that foxes were being baited as well. As I said, these are introduced species. They're not native to Australia. So I recorded that as science. And later on, I went to look for some additional information about why blackberries and foxes and other introduced species are such pests. What are they doing to the environment? And how can we control these pests? So I found some articles about that, and I told the girls about it. We talked about that just in conversation. But yes, I put the articles in my notes. I probably labelled that science and geography and HSIE. We're talking about the animals. We're talking about the natural environment. Now, one of the birds has some information about an historical home that could just be seen across the river. So that's history. And also the, the nature reserve. It was given to the people by the original owner of that home. The nature reserve was named after another person in history. So this is all history. And I did go and find some additional information about that house and about the man who the nature reserve is named after. I shared that with my girls as well. There were lots and lots of birds with pictures of birds and a description. These were near the viewing platform. We didn't actually see a lot of birds. I think perhaps we were a bit noisy. Maybe we were, we were there at the wrong time of day. We did see pelicans uh, swimming in the water and Jim Rose got a nice photo of them. But I did take photos of all the birds because the girls read them. They learned something about the birds that live in the nature reserve. The weir. We wanted to know more about the weir. What is a weir? Why do people put weirs across rivers? What effect does it have on the natural environment? Well, the weir does slow down the water flow. And the weir is the cause of the formation of the wetlands and the lagoon. It's a natural environment, but man had an influence upon it. This is geography. The way that man affects the environment, the way the land is being used. At one point in time, there was a drought for a few years. 
people were considering removing the weir so that the water in the river would flow faster and it would flow down to a local cement factory for industry. But people protested. If the weir had been removed, then the wetlands and the lagoon would have been affected. And it was decided that these were more important than um, yeah, providing a faster flow of water further downstream. I also found something else very interesting about the nature reserve. There used to be kangaroos there. There is a fence. It's called a macropod fence, and it was to keep the kangaroos out of the uh, river environment so that they wouldn't disturb it, because kangaroos can cause an awful lot of damage. There used to be shelters there and an, and an inner fence to prevent the kangaroos from getting out onto the road. They were confined to a certain area. Now, they weren't a natural population. People had introduced those kangaroos to the nature reserve. They were a local attraction. People liked to come to the nature reserve to see the kangaroos. It was a tourist attraction. But it wasn't natural. They weren't a natural population of kangaroos. They hadn't just wandered in. There was some talk of releasing the kangaroos into the natural environment. The only problem was the kangaroo population was made up of kangaroos from different areas. They had all been brought from different areas and placed in the reserve. And their genetics is different from any local uh, population. The kangaroos increased in number and became quite a pest. So not only are introduced species a pest, sometimes native species are as well. The kangaroos were going to be culled, but before that happened, there was a lot of rain and the area was in danger of being flooded from the river. So rangers decided to relocate the kangaroos to another area, another area that was confined. They, were, they will always be a population of captive kangaroos. So there's no kangaroos left there anymore. But I found all this information out by reading a document online about the management of the nature reserve. It was full of really interesting things to do with history, to do with geography, ecology, science. And I've shared some of those things with my girls. And of course, I've been making notes about it in the book because we talked about it. I've put all these documents into the notebooks. I've labeled them all with the right key learning areas. That outing was enjoyable for those few hours, but afterwards when we came back, it provided many, many hours of interesting extended learning. Now, I didn't insist my girls come and read everything I had found. I just sort of kept throwing out things like, hey, did you know there used to be kangaroos down at that nature reserve? And then they wanted to know more, and so we sat there and talked about things. I think kids are eager to learn more things, especially when it's very interesting and especially when it's relevant, when they've been there. This is our local area. And I realize we don't know an awful lot about our local area. Perhaps we should find out more. We have been living here maybe 20 years. And I am quite ashamed to say that we don't know half the things that we could know about our local area. Probably there's a lot of tourists have been places that we have never been. So, so, so one of the other things that we want to do is to explore some of the other natural reserves, other parts of the national park, places like that, historical homes, places that tourists might come and visit that we have never been to. So maybe you've also not visited everything in your local area. Maybe you could plan a few outings as well. Take time 
to take joy in the journey and go on some picnics and do some explorations close to home. We don't have to go very far to learn a lot. One of the other things I was thinking about is that we have to have a curious attitude. We have to look and wonder. If we look carefully, we can see all kinds of things that we can draw our children's attention to, that we can find out more about. For example, there are billboards all around the place here saying no coal seam gas. What does that mean? We've seen them hundreds of times. The other day I actually went online and found out more about coal seam gas why people don't want coal seam gas mining in our local area. We can learn things just by looking at a muesli bar. When we were having our picnic the other day, we had muesli bars. They were half price in the supermarket and I thought, look, I'm going to buy some of those. We don't have them very often because we tend to make things. And while we were sitting there eating them, somebody read the label and said, Mom, what's lupin? I'm not sure if the label said it was lupin-free or if it said that it contained traces of lupin. I'm not sure. I could probably go and have a look at the label again. I didn't know what lupin was. So when I got home, I did some research and I told the girls what lupin is. We looked at some photos. The other thing on the label was gluten. We all hear about gluten-free. Do our children really know what gluten-free means? Do we really know? We know that some people can't eat it. It's to do with allergies. That's another area that we talked about, allergies. And then that got us on to food labels. Why do we have food labels? What do they actually say? All these sort of things that we can just pick up in our everyday life and we can turn into notes in our record books and we can extend the knowledge ourselves and our children. They're just natural learning experiences. We just have to be on the lookout for them. Be curious people. I'm sure there were other notes I made in my notebook, but time is running out and I won't share them all, but maybe they'll give you a few ideas about how you could record something as simple as a picnic in your records books. <laughs> got one last thing that I want to share and there's a few resources and there's not many here so I'm going to continue on and talk about them even though I've been chatting for an awful long time. I guess people could always listen to my podcast in two halves or play it at twice the speed. Now last night was choir night. My husband Andy and my older girls Imogen, Charlotte and Sophie all went out to choir practice like they do every Tuesday evening and this leaves Gemma Rose, who's 12, and me at home. And usually we do something together. So Gemma Rose said to me last night, what would you like to do this evening, Mum? And I said, why don't we finish watching Persuasion? We were watching a version that we found on YouTube and we'd got about halfway through it. And I said, why don't we finish Persuasion? So that's what we did. And when it finished, we got talking about Jane Austen and other books that Gemma Rose is reading. Because I said last week that Gemma Rose and I are reading Persuasion out loud together. She's a Charles Dickens fan. We talked about how many Charles Dickens I'd read and the ones that she'd read and the ones that she wants to read. We talked about Elizabeth Gaskell. Gemma Rose has just recently finished reading North and South and she wanted to know whether I'd read it and I haven't. I've started it but I haven't finished it. And I told her that perhaps she could read Wives and Daughters 
and maybe Cranford as well. Now these Elizabeth Gaskell novels have all been made into miniseries and they're all very good. There's Cranford, Return to Cranford, Wives and Daughters and North and South. All very good viewing. And sometimes I think that when we've watched a good series, we want to go and read the book. It doesn't always happen the other way around, that we read the book first and then want to go and see the series. And this can be a good introduction to the classics to start with a movie or with a mini-series. Anyway, Gemma Rose was talking about other books that she would like to read. And she says, what was that other author, Mum, you told me that lived about the time of Charles Dickens? The books that I might be interested in. And it's Wilkie Collins. I think Wilkie Collins might be dubbed as the first detective fiction writer. I have read one of his books, The Woman in White, but my children have read lots of them. They're all freely available online as free e-books. So we were talking about other books that Gemma Rose might be interested in. What will happen when she finishes reading all the Jane Austens and all Charles Dickens? Where will she go next? Are there other authors that are similar to Jane Austen say. So I did some googling. It's really easy to find things out like this. Just google words like authors similar to Jane Austen. You can do it as well and all these links come up. So I found another author called Georgette Heyer and I've heard about Georgette Heyer before but I haven't read any of her books. Apparently she wrote thrillers during the 1930s She's also written a number of Regency romances which might appeal to Jane Austen fans. And two that I came across are The Grand Sophie and Arabella, but there are other ones. They might be suitable reading. And then, of course, there's the Brontes. They're a little bit different in style to Jane Austen, maybe a bit more melodramatic, and they don't have Jane Austen's wit, but they're interesting nonetheless. And how about George Eliot? who, as I explained to Gemma Rose, is actually a woman. How about Middlemarch? I haven't read it, and these are only suggestions, but they're things that we could investigate. It seems to me that there are a great deal of other books in that sort of Jane Austen field that we could consider as reading for our children. Are they suitable reading for a 12-year-old? Now, many times I have heard parents say that their children read so quickly that they're running out of suitable books to tempt them with. How about some of the classics? Gemma Rose has been reading Charles Dickens and Jane Austen, maybe since she was 10 or 11, and she finds them very interesting. She can cope with the language, so maybe other children could as well. Maybe it's worth tempting them with them, or maybe just presenting them with a mini-series and see where it leads. I just have one more book that I wanted to recommend, and that is a contemporary novel written sort of in the style of Jane Austen. It does mention some of her characters, and that is The Paradise Project by Susie Andrews. I am sure I'm mispronouncing Susie's last name. Susie is, of course, the author of two unschooling books. She's also a close friend of mine, and we have discussed how I pronounced her name in a past podcast, which was totally wrong. But Susie smiled, I am sure, as she heard her name mentioned in my podcast, and we had a friendly discussion about it via email. Maybe it's more likely to be pronounced Andres. I can't quite remember now. But anyway, you could have a look at her book, The Paradise Project. It's got a great number of five-star recommendations on Amazon. Mm -hmm. 
sitting here for a whole hour. I know I have paused here and there over that hour as I've collected my thoughts and had a look at my list of things I want to talk about. So maybe it won't stretch to an hour, this podcast. Maybe I can take away the extra bits that maybe didn't quite work out. But yes, it's getting to be a long podcast. So maybe I ought to say goodbye for this week. So the usual stuff. If you'd like to subscribe to my podcast, you can do that through iTunes. You can follow it on Podbean or you can follow along with my blog, Stories of an Unschooling Family, where I embed the episodes every week. Now, if you do find my podcasts helpful, perhaps you could share them with other people that you know are investigating unschooling. Spread the word a bit about unschooling, not particularly about me, but about unschooling. That would be great. So I'm going to put a blog post linked to this podcast on my blog. There'll be a few notes there, including the list of the books that I talked about. So I would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. I also like to thank people that have left comments and people who have shared my podcast link, all the kind and encouraging words that people leave for me. Thank you very much. So until next week, trust, respect, and love unconditionally. Thank you.